the writer of the Hebrews says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning and we have been singing worship songs to you, thinking about Christmas and the coming of your son. Uh, we are in the middle of a time where our entire culture is just buzzing. People are moving back and forth and buying and uh, prepping and baking and getting ready and making plans and coordinating and doing all of these things. And many forget that Christmas is a particular time and celebration appointed to remember the coming of your son. That Christmas is all about Jesus. That Christmas is not about giving and receiving gifts. It's not about uh, the, 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 the feeling inside that moves you to be generous or to seek out family or to take a break for a bit and, and relax from all the, the labor of, of work, but that 
Christmas is about Jesus and that all of the good things, all of the benefits and all the, the, the traditions and all the, the positives that have, have been celebrated in our culture flow from the fact that your son came to us. We can become judgmental and look out at our culture and say, haven't they forgot? Have, 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 how come they don't remember that this is about Jesus? Lord, I think that we can be guilty as well of several mistakes when it comes to Christmas. And we can, we can think that, that somehow peace and perfection enter into the world because of the birth of Messiah. When the truth is that that child came to live a perfect life and then to die so that peace could come. And sometimes we, we think about the fact that Christmas means that God is with us, and that's true. That is Jesus' name, Emmanuel, God is with us. But we forget that Jesus took on human form and that he was in the truest sense, like every single person in this room, he was a human being. And in our desire to be orthodox or to, to say true things or defend the truth, we start conjuring up formulas about how he is both divine and man, which he is, but we can sometimes neglect his humanity. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that as we, as we think about the incarnation and we think about the coming of, of Christ, I just I pray that, that our hearts and minds would be opened and that we would be able to sit back and look at all that's happened and say, you are good and we are blessed. And so we pray that you'd feed us from your word and encourage us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Christmas begins um, with the acknowledgement that it is not about giving gifts or about any of the, the traditions or things that have developed. Uh, none of the Christmas songs that we sing today have been written and, and prepped and prepared, you know, before the first Christmas. You know, that, that nobody knew they were supposed to be celebrating Christmas when, when Jesus was born, right? They... Uh, Everybody missed his coming. The, the, the scholars who had uh, kept their scrolls and who'd prepped and who'd studied and, you know, the, the Magi show up and they're like, show us where the one who's born king of the Jews is. And, and the scribes are like, let's dig out the scrolls and find out where he's supposed to be. Like he'd been born already and they, they missed it. They weren't ready. And so the Magi run down there. King can't even be bothered if you find him, send word, right? He's not going to go with them. He's not excited that the king is coming. They missed the coming of the Messiah. Only those who were humble and who responded to the prompting and the leading of the Spirit had any idea that he was even coming uh, the condition of the world when Jesus comes 
is similar to what it is now, but perhaps we have a, a romantic world of what a romantic view of what the world was like. John says this in John five nineteen, describing the condition of the world. He says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. When we think about what the world was like at that time, I'm not talking about the, the Roman emperor when I say this. I'm talking about the, the evil one, the devil. John, uh, Jesus describes him. John records Jesus' words where Jesus says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He has nothing to do with the truth. He's a liar and the father of lies, the world that he ruled over, the, the world that, that lay in his power, was ruled by a murderer at that time and had nothing to do with the truth. Think about what Satan accomplished in the garden when he deceived Eve and Adam and they ate and rebelled against God. Satan murdered the entire human race and covered the world in darkness and lies. I think it's called the New England Primer that begins with the rhyme, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. It's easy to look at humanity, I think, and you can find stories on whatever uh, news site that you get your news from or to, to watch the news on TV. A lot of times if Hank is around, when the news comes on, I'm like, shut it off. Like, I don't want his, I just don't want him listening to what the world that he lives in is like, you know? Like, let him be innocent for a while. Let's just kind of put some cushions and bubble wrap around the mind and, and let's dwell in a world of happiness and rainbows and love and hugs and stuff before we, we get out there into what the world is really like. Uh, our depravity just leaps out so often we see it. I had a pastor who uh, in, in my early days as a, as a believer, you know, when I seriously committed to the Lord, he said, he said, it's easy to, to look at the world through just one lens. He said, and, and, and God gave us two eyes. You know, when you, when you put on corrective lenses, think about, think about people and humanity in two different ways. He said, on, on one side, there is the depravity of, of man. There's a, there's a, a, a wickedness and a, a horribleness to the world. The atrocities and things that, that happen and the difficulties that enter people's lives and, and the, the troubling things that you hear. Sometimes you'll hear a story and, and it's somebody did this and you'll think, how is that possible? Maybe you get to an age or a place in your life where you're not shocked by things that happen anymore. You know, you read something on the news and you think like, of course that happened. The world is terrible and horrible. Maybe you're honest enough to turn those lenses on yourself and to say there are times when the, the words that come out of my mouth or my thoughts 
My actions are things that I just, I despise. And I say, I am fallen. Some Christians don't really have a problem viewing through that lens, right? They've been taught that we're, we're fallen and we're sinful. But the other lens is one of dignity. Um, there are places in the scriptures where the, the writer, I'm thinking of, of the book of uh, Ecclesiastes and the book of Proverbs, where we're told that, that God has set eternity in the hearts of men, and that it's the glory of kings to search out a matter, while it's God's glory to hide a matter. And you think about the information explosion in the world and the fact that some guy somewhere in Germany where everybody's like dying of the plague, right? He gets this brilliant idea. Like, I'm going to carve letters out of wood and I'm going to arrange them and we won't have to write everything all the time. It's like, I mean, he's thinking photocopier, like, you know, hundreds of years before photocopier. And they had to arrange all those letters, when I started working at a print company in the, the early 90s, they still had lead type. And it was this like typewriter that you could, you could press buttons on and you, you, you press the letter and the, the hot metal would land into a mold and the letters would come spitting out and then they'd arrange them. We, one of my jobs was to like take that type and recycle it because they weren't using it anymore because of computers. But, but think about the brilliance involved in that. Like that's incredible. And we've got all these books now. And, and if, if you lived a thousand years ago as a Christian, you'd have to go to church and you'd have to depend that the guy who was preaching to you was actually doing his job instead of phoning it in, that he was actually reading the Bible and read it to you because you couldn't have your own copy of it. Like, that's, that's profound. That, that somebody, and now they say that, um, that Gutenberg's motivation was that he was going to sell printed Bibles as if they were handwritten. He was going to sell them for the same amount. He, was, he had a bit of, a, of an entrepreneurial scam in him, you know, in his brain. Uh, but, but what an amazing blessing to the world. They, they say that when Luther first decided to read the scriptures for himself, that, that the only copy of the Bible that he could get access to is chained to a wall somewhere, and so he had to yank it off the wall and run off with it and study it. Think about that. How many copies of the Bible do you have in your house? A friend of ours, she used to attend church here, Becky Smith, Becky Booker, just had her first baby, and I texted her, and I said, does your baby have a Bible yet? Right? She said, yeah, we have the Jesus Storybook Bible. We got three of them, right? And I'm like, ah, I texted her back, bitterness, you know, like all exclamation points. We wanted to buy baby's first study Bible. She already got three copies of the Bible. Isn't that amazing? You know, God did that. But he did it through the, the brilliance and the genius of, of what he put inside of man. Right? There's a, there's a dignity inside of human beings. If you're living, I think, with a... With a, with a proper view towards humanity, you should kind of be in this constant state of befuddlement as you look at how amazing people can be and yet how horrific humanity can be at times, right? Such incredible, amazing 
wonder produced by human beings because of what God put in us and such awful, terrible things. There's this tragic mix there. Two lenses. William Ames, the theologian, says this, that redemption, salvation, the work of Christ can be summed up in thinking that that when redemption occurs, that God is restoring mankind by lifting him up from an estate of sin and death to an estate of grace and life. Here's... I think something wonderful to think about as Christians. If, if, we, if we think, you know, that, okay, the view of the scriptures is that the thought and intention of man is only evil all the time. Like we are wicked, depraved, horrible, awful creatures. The good news is this, that the incarnation, the gracious work of God, changes that for us. That God chooses to send his son into the world to address our most serious problems. He he sends his son into the world as a rebel. He hides him as he sends him into the world, sends him into this poverty-stricken family in some obscure corner of the world as a human being. He sends him into a world ruled by the murderer and the liar to build a kingdom and to begin to bring dead people back to life. It's an amazing thing when you consider it from where the world was before Jesus came. How and why does God do this? I think there's... Let, let me say, there's something so fun. I remember my, my pastor friend, Larry Davis, uh, said, oh, I'm doing this sermon series about three, four years ago. He said, I'm doing this sermon series. It's called The Gifts of Christmas. And we, we've got all these gifts that, um, that God gives us, like uh, faith and joy and peace and love. And each week we're going to have a present and we're going to have a kid come up and open the present. And inside it's going to be a present that's going to be the main theme of the sermon. I'm like, so, like, and then what happens? And he's like, well, then the kid goes and sits. I'm like, you're inviting a kid up to open a present. And then you're going to send him back to his seat without a present? And I said, this is what I'm going to do. We're going to do Advent. I'm going to give kids something, right? We're going to give them a present. And it was like the first time we did this. And I was like, I am hooked. This is so much fun to, to conceal something and to talk to these kids. And, you know, something happens every single week as we're doing Advent, right? At the beginning, you know, they're like, look at the wreath on the window. Is someone talking? Like, who is that? Is he talking? About? And then at some point they realize, oh, yeah, there's a thing coming. What's in the box, right? What is it? What's going on there? And then they, and then they, 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 they want it. They want to get it. You know, like they want to get their hands on it and open it up. You know, and sometimes kids get up and walk around the entire church if they're older and try to get into the box and get one for themselves. You know, and that's totally okay. Think about God's 
perspective. His creation is corrupted and destroyed. He makes a promise to Adam and Eve that he will redeem and that he will save. His good purpose and good will is to redeem humanity. Ephesians 1, 9 talks about God's good will. He purposed in himself to redeem humanity. They, they ha- we hadn't done anything deserving salvation. We hadn't done anything earning redemption. There was nothing in us which could, which could influence him or turn him or, or appeal to him. You know that, that feeling when your kids say to you, aw, like, please, and you feel your inner resolve start to weaken. You know that? It starts to melt. There's, you're, and you're like, you're just so, like, that feel like you're cute. Or, I get it, you need that. Or, all right, you know, like, you're, you're totally reasonable. And, okay, okay, all right. Uh. Nothing like that for God the Father. Fellowship is broken. Destroyed by sin. There isn't, in God's view, just a little bit unrighteous or a little bit sinful. If we break one command, we destroy the whole law in God's eyes. Because he's infinitely perfect. There's nothing in us that could force God to show us grace. In fact, our sins against him and our our love for sin and the fact that we have embraced lies and the fact that we lie underneath the power of the evil one and we rebel against him means that what we pile up is unrighteousness. In fact, then earning, as the the scriptures say, the wages of sin, which is death. We, we, We work for that which displeases God. In fact, we increase his anger toward us. But because of his gracious kindness toward us and his love he purposes to redeem humanity i think the most insensible or or unexpected words of scripture live in ephesians chapter 2 it says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath. That means children deserving God's wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich, like this does not follow Right? What follows is, therefore, destruction. Right? Judgment. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That is unexpected. Unexpected. Maybe we've grown so used to it, that it's lost its wonder. Romans 5a, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God does something amazing for humanity in redemption and in salvation, which we 
talk about. We, we talk about the beginning of redemption and the redemptive work of God and, and salvation. And we call it Christmas, which is the entering into the world of the, the Son of God, the appearing of Christ. God does something so amazing for humanity, but he also does something incredible to humanity in the incarnation. When we think about salvation, we need to to think about the idea of redemption, the idea of purchasing or saving or repairing or fixing. The incarnation is the beginning of, of making redemption official. You know how it works if you're going to buy a house and you're going to get a mortgage, right? Maybe you scrape together a little bit of money and you put it down against the, the house. But, but what happens is you're, you're looking at all those payments in the future, right? And there's all that interest. And you get to live in the house. You don't need to work for seven years like Jacob had to work for, you know, not Rachel, right? You know, before you, you get access to the house, you get to live there, but you're living in the house. You're borrowing it from the bank because you don't really own it, right? But you get it. And, and they, they credit it all, all that, that ownership to you, and they send you those statements, and you need to slowly chip away at that until you get there. God had shown grace to humanity all throughout history, but there was the actual achieving of salvation that took place in the life of Christ. All the the Old Testament saints, all the people who believed and who had died were living on credit, waiting for Messiah to actually come and accomplish salvation. And so when when we think about the birth of Christ as he enters into the world... He is preparing to achieve salvation. He's a, uh, he is living the life that is required to save us. If God was going to extend saving grace, if he was going to make good on his promises to those people who lived in the past, who believed him and he credited righteousness to them, as Genesis 15, 6 says, if, if he's going to make good on those promises, then he actually needed to deal with wrath and punishment. The scriptures say in, in the book of Romans, in, in chapter 3, that, that he wants to be just and the justifier of the one who puts their faith in Christ. And so God needs to punish and pour out his wrath in order for people to be saved. Wrath needs to be dealt with. And so God gives Jesus a body, a real human body. Like there are probably some non-Christian conceptions of what's happening in the life of Jesus in this room right now. Like you're, you're thinking like, yeah, he's God, fully God, right? And so God just kind of sticks humanity to him, like just kind of puts it on him. Like he's sort of human. He's not really human. He doesn't really know what it's like to be. I mean, no, he's really human. 
He is 100% human, completely and utterly. This is, this is, I think, profound in thinking about, yes, God loves humanity. He creates the, the, the world and he creates human beings and he puts his image in them and he loves them. But I think there's something, you know what it's like to love kids, right? Kids are fun. There's something fun about doing nice things for kids or watching kids uh, act out a Christmas pageant, right? But there's something about your own kids, right? That's different than all the other kids in the world. There's something about your kids that you're like, that's my child. You wouldn't do anything for every kid, but many of you would do anything for your own kid, right? I mean, that's what it's like to have kids. Think about what happens here. God demonstrates his love for humanity by sending his son to become a human, an actual human being. This may not sound profound and incredible because like, we've heard this over and over again, but, but there, there is a dignity that comes to humanity when the Son of God graces us with his very presence in our midst. He becomes one of us. He throws his lot in with us. He identifies with us. The scriptures say that, that he's going to be numbered among the transgressors, right? And we think, like, oh, that applies to when he's unjustly punished and sentenced to death, right? And he hangs with the, between the two thieves, like numbered among the transgressors. It starts before that. It starts before that. It starts when he becomes a human being. Because everybody down here is a sinner, And he takes on human form. He doesn't take on sin, but he lives in the world of sinners, surrounded by people who can't keep God's laws, who won't obey him, who don't seek him. He he grows up in the midst, right? The, The prophecies say he grew up like a tender shoot, right? I think about that and think like, is, is, is part of that that there are no other living plants anywhere where he's growing? Surrounded by all these people walking around who are dead inside and who have no real life within them. And here he is, this one lone living human who doesn't have sin in him. He's not alienated from the Father. His every thought in every intention. I, there's something so amazing until, until it was pointed out to me. I never saw it. I'd read scriptures before. Um, I'm not going to be able to find it. It's probably in chapter 4. Is it in chapter 4? It's in chapter 14. I'm thinking about where, where um, it says that God, God says, I'm not interested in, in uh, offerings of goats and bulls. Right? That's not what God's interested in. But Messiah knows this as he enters into the world. That's not what God's interested in. But Messiah says to, uh, to, to the Lord, he says to God, but you've prepared a body for me. You, you've given me flesh. And then the, 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 the next line says, behold, 
in the scroll of the book, it's written of me. I have come to do your will. Right. These are the 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 pre-birth prenatal thoughts of Jesus, the Messiah. Right. That that as he as he comes into existence and begins to grow in his mother's womb, this is what he's thinking. I am here to do the will of God. I am here to live it out and to to follow God's laws. He's one of us, but he's unlike us. He's the only one who ever obeys. He's the only one who ever upholds all of God's laws. And and we may fast forward and say like, oh, okay, you know, the the chief commandments are to uh, love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. Like that's the big, those are the big rules, right? Well, yeah, but, but they're only the big rules if somebody keeps all the rules for us, right? The law exists to show us what righteousness is. That's what the scriptures say. To show us this is what the character of God is. This is the standard that we need to live by. This is the glory of God. And then it's there to teach us what sin is. And that we fall short of it. That's what the book of of Romans says. That by works of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight. Because we can't keep them. But then later, it says that the one who loves has fulfilled the law. But that only comes after someone keeps the law for us and takes our punishment for us and gives us life. The one who comes and lives perfectly for us. So Jesus comes and he is the only one on the earth who obeys, who when God says, do this, he doesn't say, I don't have to do that. Shouldn't your laws be different? Shouldn't your rules change? Shouldn't you adjust and change? And he says, I will, I will, I will. I've come to obey. And he becomes the most valuable thing. First, by virtue of being the son of God from heaven, he's of infinite value. But being the only one who ever obeyed, the only one who was ever truly innocent, The only one who never sinned. Think about it. God created a garden. He put Adam and Eve in it. He said, here's one command. And they broke it. He brought Israel out of slavery. Certainly people who should have been grateful for the work that God had done on their behalf. Right? You know, and they're coming out of Egypt, whining and complaining. We don't have enough onions. It's actually in the Bible. Remember when we were in Egypt, we used to sit by the side of the river and eat as many onions as we wanted. Like what? You know? We ate all this manna. Really? I would love it if like, I just walked around and there was food everywhere. It would be awesome. They whine and complain and they rebel against him. No one had ever obeyed. And he comes and he obeys. And being innocent and perfect, he goes to the cross to redeem us. To bring us into freedom from our bondage into sin confirmed by the works we've done. We're sentenced into this because of the sin of Adam and we lie underneath the power of the devil, but he comes and pays an equal price. How can he pay an equal price for you? Because he's a person like you. Hebrews says he's made in all manner like us, except without sin. 
Listen, this is what's so important. Christmas is not, people are like, Christmas is all about God giving to us, and so we give. It's not. It's about the fact that Jesus became a human being. And without the incarnation, without him taking on flesh, there is no salvation. He takes on flesh so that we can be saved because we are fleshly beings. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. People are always like, oh, these bodies and matter and, you know, like, I just, uh, one day I'm going to be in heaven. You're going to have a body in heaven, the Bible says. You're going to have a redeemed body. You're going to be like him. He has a resurrected body right now, Jesus does. Heaven's not like sitting on disembodied clouds in some, like, seventh dimension or something, you know? Like, it's not. It's not a bodiless existence. God created us to be this way. And even though the catechisms say that God is a spirit and does not have a body like men, you know who does forever? Jesus. He will always be human. Always. Always divine and always human. He took humanity upon himself and he elevated us. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, you know that you were not redeemed by corruptible things such as silver and gold. I don't know about you, but I, 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 feel, I feel my, I'm like, man, isn't that what everybody's after? Silver, gold, money. Like, isn't that what people, people strive for cash? They are after the security that comes from having Resources and not having, having to worry about where their money's coming from. You weren't worried. You weren't redeemed by corruptible things, such as silver and gold, Peter says. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, the most perfect human who has ever lived. That's not what's there in the scriptures, but we know that he became a human to go to the cross for us so that we could be redeemed. He has to have a body. He has to be human. He has to be perfect in order to stand in the place of imperfect human beings. 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 1 Corinthians 7.23 tell us we were bought with a price. Bought with a price. Not just the goodwill of God, not just the grace of God credited to us or given to us. No, a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, stood in our place after he lived a perfect life. And he gave himself that we could be saved. He became a mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.6, Who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Paul warns the Ephesian elders, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained. Now remember, the, 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 the catechisms and covenants say God is a spirit and he doesn't have a body like men, right? You know, God made you overseers of the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
if Jesus doesn't take on human flesh, if he doesn't become like us, truly like us, you know, there's this thought that just persists at times in the back of my mind, like, like, you know, of course it was he was able to redeem humanity. He's God, right? He's perfect. Of course he was able to do it. And I almost think it was easy for him. I don't think so. I don't think that's what the scriptures are teaching us. I think they, they, they are teaching us that this was near impossible. And it, we ought to view it as completely and utterly amazing that a human being squared off with the devil who ruled the world and who destroyed and murdered every single person who ever existed prior to that, and that he resists temptation and triumphs. I know we read that the angels came and ministered to him after the temptation, but, but you wonder, like, when they came to him after the temptation, did they say, you, you did it? <laughs> like, you did it. You're the first one who's ever done it. You're the first human being who has ever pushed back against the devil and not died. You're the first one who's ever obeyed. How did you make it to 30 without dying? <laughs> like, how did you resist the temptations? That's what our Savior is like. Hebrews 13.8 says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. That's not he's really God's Son and he's kind of only partly human being. He takes on our flesh and identifies with us so that we can be saved. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world, Peter says, but was made known in these last times for you. I think that we ought to give Jesus his rights and be zealous and excited. When, when, when we tell others, when we say, nor is there salvation in any other name, for among men there's, there's, there's no name given under which... Uh, in, in heaven by which they might be saved. Like, there's no other name, right? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We, we, sometimes, we sometimes just convert that to, well, there's, there's no other true religion. There's no other savior. There's no, other, there's no other path that we can walk that winds up in heaven. I think Jesus is, is saying this. He's saying only one person, only one Savior, only one Messiah has come who has taken on flesh and pleased the Father. There's no other way to get to the Father. You've got to follow me. I'm the first real human being. Who's, who's lived the way that God's called us to. He carries out the terms by which God says that we will be saved. Everyone else fails. This is, this is why the scriptures in, in the book of Romans say that in Adam all die, and in Christ all live. All who follow him live. 
he blazes a completely new trail. He lives in a, in a completely different way. At Christmas, we focus on many times, I think, Emmanuel, which means that God is with us. And we think God came down to us. Yes, but he entered into our existence. He became a human being. The word, which was in the beginning with God and existed with God in the beginning and was like God and he was God, it says, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. Not just for a time. He laid aside his own prerogatives And he took flesh upon himself to become like us, not for a small period of time, but forever. Romans 9, 4, as Paul is listing all the benefits and blessings that come to the Jews, he says, they're Israelites and to them belong adoption and the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. The emphasis here is on the fact that that Jesus descends as a very real human being from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he is God over all. He doesn't become God later, but a human being and the eternal God exist in this one person, in this profound mystery. But because he comes among us while we are dead and obeys and lives this perfect life and goes to the cross and is raised, having identified with us, being numbered among the transgressors, we can put our faith and trust in him, right? We respond in faith. We respond by being baptized, by identifying with him, right? He identifies with us. We identify with him. And it signifies that something amazing has happened. This is I think that if we could drill down and and access this truth and keep it living in the forefront of our minds, it would change everything about the way that we live. Peter says this in 2 Peter, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. By his promises, through his promises that have been granted to us, we can become partakers of the divine nature. The Holy Spirit of God actually becoming part of us. You know what? That doesn't happen if Jesus doesn't become a human being. William Ames says this, because God is in Christ, God, man, has, because God in Christ has restored life to us, our faith is therefore carried towards Christ and by Christ towards 
God. He's talking about the fact that we've been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death so that we can be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him. When Jesus takes on humanity, he elevates and makes it possible that all humanity, all those who put their faith and trust in Christ, all those who believe in him can stand in the presence of God and be holy and righteous in his sight. The Bible says, since the children share in flesh and blood, since the children had a human nature, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He took on a human nature so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. The devil has the power of death over us while we remain in his kingdom. But because Jesus took on flesh, because he manifested, he appeared in the world by taking on the form of a servant. It's not an illusion. He becomes a very real human being who can die because he does not deserve to die. And he takes our death upon himself. We are able to be redeemed. But when he meets death, death dies. And that should deliver us from this fear of death. Not that we won't be afraid of, 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 of physical suffering and pain, but the overwhelming, destructive paranoia, thinking about the fact that our time is running out, thinking that, that, that we have to be worried about what it will be like when we enter into God's presence, or thinking, I will be judged for my sins. We can think this. Someone who didn't deserve it has been punished for my sins. Someone who didn't deserve to be punished, someone who was perfect, stood in my place and absorbed my punishment and my pain and my judgment so that I need not go under judgment. And that ought to rid me of the fear of standing in the presence of my father one day and being judged. So often, I think it's easy to read this and to lose the, the physicalness of what Jesus did. In verse 26 of Hebrews 9, it says, As it is, he has appeared, appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let me, let me conclude by, by just saying this. I have, I, have, I have a tendency, I think, and, and so I preach what I think is important. I think of the, the traps that I fall into personally and the places that my mind goes and the things that I, I think like, why do I keep thinking that way? And I'm like, other people probably think that way too. I don't preach on that. Let me just, let me close it by saying this. I think that, that we have to look at the incarnation. We need to look at Jesus taking on flesh and say, there is no doubt at all that he is fully God. Yes, we believe that. But do we truly believe that he became fully man. And do I, do I think that because he went to the cross that God truly loves me, he loves all of me. Not just 
the person that I can become if I behave myself, right? Not just me on my best days, but me as a human being, as a whole person. God loves me and he gave his physical son to stand in my place and to die for me. The resurrection is the the capstone of the most amazing miracle of, of God taking on flesh to save us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that is why we are able to have life. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for uh, the opportunity to, to, to share this morning. And I, I pray that, that we would look at other human beings with incredible compassion because of the, the dignity that you crown them with because you took on flesh. Lord, I, I pray that we would see humanity as an amazing, wonderful, beautiful, tragic, and, 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 and troubled people that, that you love. Your son became a human being. Lord, you took on flesh to redeem us. And, and you know what the struggle with temptation is like. The scriptures say that we can draw near to you in a time of need. Because we have a sympathetic high priest who is made just like us yet without sin. You know what it's like, Lord Jesus, to live in this world surrounded by sin, struggling and tempted. You know. And so we're able to come to you and to say, this is difficult and I struggle. And you say, I know, and we can believe that you do. We thank you for this amazing, profound thing that has happened that you entered in and took humanity upon yourself forever. You became like us to save us. We don't deserve this. There's, there's nothing in us that moved you. Your great love motivated you to save us, Father. And I pray, Lord Jesus, I ask that if there's anybody here who's depending on anything, other than your grace for salvation. I pray that they would put their faith and trust in you, Father. And I, I pray for each and every one of us that, that we would truly believe that as you have taken on flesh, that that makes all the difference for us, that that secures our salvation, that, that you are a permanent and perfect substitute for us. And that nothing will ever change about our salvation because you have paid for it. We thank you for this incredible miracle. We pray that we would ponder it and consider it and delight in it. And that it would not become common and familiar to us, Lord. We thank you. We love you. We pray your, your blessing on the remainder of our service and on the week to come. We pray that we would think upon these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing a closing song. Mm-hmm.